Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursalin. Sayyidina wa maulana wa habibina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Ahna wa sahnan, marhaban. Welcome everybody to our class again this week. Alhamdulillah, jazakumul khair for joining us. Uh, I'm Umar Abdullah and welcome to the Misk Women weekly class, Women on the Straight Path. Uh, inshallah, we have an interesting lesson ahead of us. And as you can see, I've entitled it Three Women in One Family. And we could say three women from one family. We could look at these three women from a number of different angles. And as you can see there, we have Arwa bin Harb bin Umayya, who is the sister of Abi Sufyan. And we have Hind bin Utba, the wife of Abi Sufyan. And we have Ramla Um Habiba, the daughter of Abi Sufyan. So we have these three very different women with very different journeys with their belief or disbelief all connected to this one man, Abu Sufyan ibn Harb. And we will go into his story in a moment as we will go into all of their stories. But each of these women represents a different state of the heart, a different state of belief, and of course, a very different attitude and relationship with the Quran, with revelation and with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we can look at them, as I said, from a number of different angles, but all of them in some way were connected to the religious, social, cultural, traditional, political and economic authority of the Kaaba and of the tribes and of this great and ancient land of Mecca. And of course, what was to become beyond that as the years went by. So inshallah, we're going to have a look at these stories and hopefully that will help us understand ourselves a bit more and where we are in terms of the state of our hearts as well regarding the Quran and the revelation in general, inshallah. So we will start with our dua of Imam Haddad. This is a picture of Jabal Uhud, uh, the great mountain there in Medina where the battle of Uhud took place in the third year of the Hijra or after the Hijra, after the migration. And we will talk about that event a little bit more, inshallah. And we'll start with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Nawaitu ta'alama wa ta'alim wa tadhakura wa tadhkir wa nafa' wal intifa' wal ifadata wal istifada wal hatha ala tamasuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua ila al-huda wa dalalata ala al-khayr ibtigha'a wa jahillahi wa mardatihi wa kurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance, pleasure, proximity and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Amen. Okay, we will start with the first of these women. And as you will see, uh, what we have here is 
different representations of dark and light or darkness and illumination. And our first woman that we are looking at is Arwa bint Harb bin Umayya. She was the sister of Abu Sufyan and she was also the wife of Abu Lahab. Okay, and she was called Um Jamil, which was her kunya, so a name that she was given. But in everything that I've read, I haven't actually found any reference to who Jamil was, uh, whether that was a child that she had had at some stage and maybe passed away, or whether it was more like a lakab, like a kind of a, a nickname that she was given. So she is known by that name, but I couldn't find any reference to that person. But before we go into her story, we'll just mention a little bit about who is this man, Abu Sufyan. So who is this man about whose sister, wife and daughter we will be discussing in some detail today, inshallah. So Abu Sufyan, his full name was Sakhar bin Harb bin Umayya bin Abdi Shams bin Abdi Manaf. So he was from the uh, Abdi Shams branch and the Umayyad, the Umayyad line, so the line of Umayyad from whom the first empire was established, the Umayyad Empire from Damascus, which we had mentioned last week as well. So they come from this particular line. So Umayyad was his great-grandfather. He was an extremely wealthy and powerful nobleman of the Quraysh. So the Umayyad tribe had a lot of political interest and economic interest. And Abu Sufyan was a great trader and he did many, many trading journeys throughout his lifetime. He amassed vast wealth for himself and at some point it's said that he had even purchased land around Damascus in that area, which may or may not have something to do with moving there later on when his son Muawiyah became the Khalifa. Uh, but he had a lot of influence over the events in Mecca and also outside through his uh, trading and his economic ties. Uh, he was very influential amongst the other Arab tribes outside of Mecca as we know generally from the Sira, from the prophetic history as he was able to pull them together to fight the Muslims on several occasions. And he was of course one of the most fierce opponents of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he led the Battle of Badr in the second year after the migration, after the Hijrah, which the Quraysh lost. So that was an extremely decisive victory for the Muslims, and it truly established the Muslims in the land of the Hijaz of Saudi Arabia, and Abu Sufyan was leading that battle from the Meccan side, and they lost that decisively. But throughout his life, he really spent more than 20 years plotting, scheming, brewing up the most evil plans he could in all sorts of ways to try and destroy the Muslims. And as a result, he caused a tremendous amount of trouble, bloodshed and heartache for this new faith community. He did accept Islam on the night before the conquest of Mecca, uh, after he had visited Medina before that, seeking to negotiate after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which was violated by some of the Qurayshi allies. And he realized at that point that he was not going to win and that he needed to really submit. And he did become a believer and he did make his Islam good. 
And we know that when the Prophet ﷺ entered Makkah victorious in the conquest of Makkah, he said, whoever is in the house of Abu Sufyan is safe. And so he gave full protection to Abu Sufyan, his absolute arch enemy and father-in-law too, and we'll get to that. But he gave full protection to Abu Sufyan and to his family and to anybody who had uh, tried to protect themselves or stay out of trouble inside his house. And then, of course, he declared that all the people of Mecca were free. So this was one of the greatest acts of forgiveness and forbearance ever in human history, where the Prophet, after decades of persecution and kind of a living hell, really, that they that the Muslims had been put through by the people of Mecca, by the tribes of Quraysh and their allies, he declared that all of the people of Mecca were free. So that meant there would be no punishment, no retribution, nothing. They were all free. And of course, the vast, vast majority of them came that very day and accepted Islam. Some of them waited a little bit still. Some of them fled who weren't interested at all, and they were free to do whatever they want. So by doing that, the Prophet ﷺ had maintained Abu Sufyan's authority in Mecca. He didn't disparage him, he didn't put him down, and he didn't dishonor him, despite what he had done. But he was maintained and he became a very noble companion of the Prophet ﷺ. He fought in quite a few battles and he was sort of getting a bit old at that stage as well. He gave much of his wealth and he even lost an eye in the battle against Ta'if when the Muslims went there to destroy the uh, site of worship of one of the false gods, Alat. And he was also appointed the governor of Najran for a time, and he died at the age of about 88 years old. So this is just a tiny little summary of the life of this man, Abu Sufyan, who kind of tasted everything. All the victories, all the losses, from the darkness of the depths of disbelief to the light and illumination of faith and Islam. And Arwa bint Harb bin Umayya was his sister. And she also proved herself a staunch supporter of the Quraysh, of their hatred and their violence against the Muslims in a truly wicked ways. So she was called in the Quran, Hamalat al-Hatab, the carrier of wood, because she carried branches and twigs and thorns to throw on the doorstep of the Prophet ﷺ outside his house. And she had forgotten that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had protected him from people, or maybe she didn't know about that. But she was an extremely vicious and evil and wicked woman. So she represents for us the ultimate in darkness and the ultimate in how somebody can be there. And we kind of used this term last week where we talked about the real time of the Quran, which was being present with revelation. And it's almost as though she was so... Uh, switched off like her heart had been completely locked as the Quran describes it that there's locks on the hearts and she couldn't see anything other than her evilness she couldn't hear anything she didn't know anything except the depths of this darkness of kufr and she lived that too so it's not like she went off and did her own thing with that no no she lived that in a very very public way and we will see uh, about the verses that came down about her, how that actually ended up transpiring for her. 
So not only was she the sister of Abu Sufyan, but she was also the wife of Abu Lahab. And Abu Lahab was the Prophet Salam's uncle. And so she had a very, very close relationship with the Prophet Salam. So because she was married to his uncle, she was kind of like his aunt. Okay, so she was very, very close. And so she knew him from birth, from when he was uh, first brought into this world. She knew the whole family extremely well. And you could say she was really a very, very central person in the family. And, and she became even more so, but in the worst possible way. So Abu Lahab himself was also very opposed to Islam and very opposed to when his nephew uh, came with the message and had tried to uh, spread this message to his family and he was called upon in the Quran to do that and they were extremely disparaging, extremely unpleasant and just thought this whole thing was a waste of time. Why? Because of course they were threatened. So by having this new religion, by having this change, by having people suddenly realize that there could be a different way, then it meant, of course, that their authority was threatened, their wealth was threatened, their power and status was threatened, and, of course, they didn't like this. So this was underlying their reasons for their antagonism, as was their belief in the false gods and idols. So Arwa, Um Jamil, uh, she spread a lot of lies and slander. Uh, she said she laid thorns and waste animal waste on the Prophet doorstep, doorstep. So when he came out at Fajr time in the morning when it was still dark, he wouldn't be able to see that. And he would hurt his feet. He would slip on the waste that she had put there, the insides of animals and their waste products and rubbish that she would dump there. And so she really gave him an extremely hard time and she supported the efforts of all others to do the same and it's said about her that it's as though she was created for evil or that evil was created for her and she was never known for having done anything good so the thing is what we can see also reflected in the behavior of these people is what we see currently in the world at the moment with the way in which there are various groups and various ideas of people who are opposed to Islam. And we might say that a lot of the same motivation is there to not like Islam. It's based on a complete ignorance, even though they've had 14 centuries of Islam in front of them, even though they like to go to Muslim countries and enjoy the history and the architecture and enjoy the food and the culture of Muslims, they still have a very arrogant attitude. So it's as though they can see and hear something of it, but they just refuse in their hearts to acknowledge it. And a lot of that's based on a feeling threatened. Um, and that's been the case for from the beginning. And so we can we can see that these things have never stopped. So in our time, it's not like we're suffering in any way that other people haven't suffered. Muslims have always been at the receiving end of ill treatment and evil treatment by other people who feel threatened by Islam in some way. And it's really a no-win situation for them because although they're deluded by the thought of a short-term victory against Muslims in many ways, these types of conquests and successes that they think they might have in this short and temporary life in this ephemeral world of the dunya that we're currently in, these things are all beguiling. 
because there's no substance to them really. It's just things and positions that come and go in and out of our hands and before we know it we're in our grave and the only currency that we will have is our deeds and what we did whilst we were here. So after Arwa bint Harb had heard about this particular surah, Surah Al-Masad, which we'll have a look at in a moment, after it had been revealed and she'd heard it, she saw Sayyidina Abu Bakr sitting by the Kaaba. Sayyidina Abu Bakr, who the closest friend of the Prophet, and what she didn't see was the fact that the Prophet himself, وسلم, was sitting next to him. So she went up to Sayyidina Abu Bakr and she said, Oh, where's your friend today? And he thought that was very strange because the Prophet was sitting right next to him. And he said to her, uh, Am I sitting with anyone? Because he wanted to know what was going on. And she got angry and she said, Don't mock me. Okay, like, what do you think? I am stupid. No, of course, you're not sitting with anyone, you're sitting alone. And she quoted some poetry that she'd written. And she said, oh, your friend, meaning the prophet, who was actually her husband's nephew, um, said such and such about me, so here's my response. And she was referring to the chapter that had been revealed, and this was her response to it. And she said, I don't see anyone but you. And then she said, all the Quraysh know that I'm the daughter of its noble leader. And then she left. And then the Prophet said to Sayyidina Abu Bakr, the angels veiled me and she didn't see me. And he said, uh, her evil ways are enough. So furthermore, her connection to the family of the Prophet was through her two sons, Utbah and Utaybah, because they had been betrothed in marriage to the two daughters of the Prophet before revelation, his two daughters Sayyida Ruqayyah and Sayyida Umm Kulthum. But after the revelation of the surah, um, their mother came to them, the two sons, and ordered their divorce. So this had actually happened before the marriages had been finalized and consummated. So the two sons were forced to divorce these two daughters. And then Oteba, the younger one, went to the prophet and very openly declared his disbelief. And he said that he would harm him. That, that he would harm the Prophet and so the Prophet of course uh, was not uh, personally upset by that but he still made a dua against him and he said oh Allah let him be overcome by a dog from your dogs or from a wild animal from your wild animals and even though the people were violently opposed to the Prophet they still trusted him and this was the, the irony of the whole situation because he was known before revelation as Asadiq al-Amin, as the, the uh, truthful and trustworthy one. This was what he was known as amongst the people. And they knew that he'd never lied. They knew of his excellent and high standard of character, but still they were so threatened by what this new religion had brought that they turned against him. So they were very worried about this dua that he had made. And so Tabor went with his father, Abu Lahab, on a trading journey to Sham, uh, around the Syria, that area up north. And they were actually quite scared for Tabor because they felt that that dua might actually be answered. And so on one of the nights they were, uh, they, they put up their camp for the night 
and what they had done previously on the other nights as well was make sure that all the goods were surrounded were surrounding them um, they were in a very small space and they had put their animals and everyone inside because they were scared that something would happen and then one night when all the men were sleeping a lion came in so there were lots of lions in the region at the time and it sniffed all the faces of the men until it came to Oteba and mauled him to death but still his parents refused to accept Islam and I was not able to find out the ending of Arwa bin Harb uh, the mother of Oteba uh, but what is known and written about is the death of Abu Lahab who died of a skin disease. So the Prophet Salaam's uncle, and he died of a disease which manifested in his body like pustules. So something like he had a plague type of illness. And he was a terrible alcoholic as well. And so he had this horrible poisoned look about him because he was poisoned physically and spiritually. And so he ended up dying on his bed uh, in probably a most agonizing death and the people were too scared to go near his body so there's a bit of uh, social distancing um, they were too scared to go near his uh, poisoned and sick and, and bacteria ridden body and so they got some slaves some say to, to pick up his body and dump it and others say and I think this is a stronger narration to actually dig a hole in the floor right where he was next to the bed on which he had died and then from outside they used sticks uh, long sticks to push his body into the hole and then they covered it with stones and sand so a most ungracious ending to a really evil character um, of Abu Lahab and he and his wife have been immortalized really for their bad attitude for the illnesses of their heart and for the darkness that they were engulfed in uh, through their hatred of Islam and through their hatred of the Prophet So this particular chapter is a very small one. It comes right at the end, Surah Al-Masad, which everybody would know. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Condemned are the hands of Abi Lahab, and he is condemned. His wealth did not avail him, nor did what he acquired. So, what he acquired there, his kasab, is, or what my kasab, kasbuhu, is what he acquired of wealth and also of sons. So children are considered part of a person's rizq or wealth and his son certainly did not avail him or help him in any way. He will burn in a flaming fire. And this is also where his name comes from, Abu Lahab, because Lahab means flames. And so he's the, Abu Lahab means the father of the flames. So it means the person who has a lot of flames, like Abu Dhabi, literally means the father of the deer or the the wild gazelle but of course not literally it just means a place which has a lot of uh, gazelles and uh, deer roaming in it so that's like just a peculiarity of arabic then it says so there's her name hamalatul hatab 
and his wife, she is the firewood carrier because of what we said about her carrying the thorns and, and branches and twigs to persecute the Prophet ﷺ with. Fi jidiha habalun mimmasad. And she bears around her neck a rope of thorns. So this is the ultimate real-time warning. And this was revealed, and of course they rejected it, and it only made them more stubborn that they would be on this path of trying to destroy Islam. And what this shows us, though, is that because it refers to real-time things, so it refers to the sons and wealth that Abu Lahab had. It refers to his wife who carried the firewood. And this rope around her neck that's made of thorns also refers to the fact that she was the one who used to lay the most amount of thorns uh, and that type of material for the Prophet to be bothered by. So this shows that this revelation is not a joke. And it shows that it's not stories of the ancients or from a madman or a soothsayer or a fortune teller, which is what they used to accuse the Prophet ﷺ of being. And this was recited in front of her, in her very presence. But because she was so consumed with evil, she couldn't see it. So even though this had been revealed about her and her husband, the Prophet ﷺ's uncle, we don't think that they are only going to be punished in the next life because Allah is the most just. Allah is the most merciful. And even if they did something good, they will be rewarded for that because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not oppress anybody or do wrong to anyone. In his court, where everybody's account will be taken, all it is is justice and mercy. So he doesn't oppress anyone but people wrong themselves. So after his death, his brother Abbas, Sayyidina Abbas, may Allah be pleased with him, saw him in a dream and he asked him about his state. And he said that his punishment was reduced on a Monday because of the joy he had shown at the birth of the Prophet ﷺ because he was born on a Monday. And the joy that he had expressed, he uh, jumped up and down with joy at the birth of this nephew and because of his uh, great state of happiness he had freed his slave girl Thueba. So Allah even recognizes that despite this foul man in the days of ignorance and in the days of Islam despite how awful he was he is given reprieve what? for the love that he showed for his blessed nephew so if this man died hating the whole thing but had shown one moment of joy before, many, many years before, then we need to ask ourselves, well, how much will Allah overlook of our wrongdoings to our own selves by the faith and emulation and love that we have for the Prophet So not only do we believe in him and follow him and love him, but inshallah, we try and adorn ourselves with his character, with his speech and with knowledge about him. So what will Allah do for us, inshallah, uh, when we seek to do good and when we seek the countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we look at the good that's done to this man despite all the evil that he had enacted in his lifetime. So that's a bit of the story of Arwa bint 
Harb, the sister of Abu Sufyan and the wife of the Prophet Alayhisselatuwasam's uncle Abu Lahab and the darkness with which she was so engulfed in that didn't enable her to see the Quran or understand the Quran even though it was right there in front of her. Okay, the next one that we're going to look at is Hind bin Utbah who is also Umm Muawiyah, the mother of the first Khalifa of the Umayyad dynasty and she was the wife of Abu Sufyan. Okay, now her story is a little bit different because she started off in darkness and then she ended up coming into the illumination of Islam and the illumination of belief. So she's kind of in the middle there because she changed, alhamdulillah. And Hind bin Utbah was a most formidable woman and she remained that way right until the very end. Her name was Hind bin Utbah bin Rabia and her mother was Safiya bint Umayyah. So she was also from the Umayyad tribe um, on her mother's side and she was a, a noble woman of the Quraysh as well. She had been married before to Al-Faka bin Al-Mughira Al-Makhzumi and then she was married to Abu Sufyan. So she had actually apparently been married twice before, once to Faka's brother and then to him and then there was some misunderstanding there. This Faka apparently had a kind of a hall that he used to hire out for weddings and other uh, big uh, occasions and on uh, on one day there had been I, I, I just read this somewhere so i don't know how true it is but uh, apparently this is the story hind had been present at the the gathering and there was a big party and everything and apparently she had fallen asleep in the corner and at the same time a male slave walked out and there had only been her asleep and this male slave in the big hall and Faka came in and so he immediately thought that something unbecoming had happened between his wife and the slave. And so he accused Hind of that and she said no, uh, that wasn't the case and that she had been asleep. And so, she, so he divorced her straight away. And then she said, um, I'm not going to accept this until uh, my innocence is proven because now of course there'd been all this talk about her amongst the people of Mecca because women who were free were not known to have committed adulterous acts. This was something that free women just didn't do. Uh, adultery was something that would have been committed amongst uh, slave women or servant people, but it was never committed by free women uh, nor by noble women. Anyway, so she said, I'm not going to have this issue settled until my innocence is declared. And so they bought a soothsayer in and the soothsayer came up to her in another gathering and said oh this woman is innocent and she will be the mother of a king and so immediately Faka wanted to have her back and so he claimed that he will bring her back and she said no and she refused and she said I'm not going to give you the honor of being the father of the king I'm going to give that to another man like this is how gutsy she was and so she went off because she'd already been divorced by Faka. So she went off and she married Abu Sufyan. And then she had her son Muawiyah, who indeed, as we've said, did become the Khalifa and was a great leader of the Muslims. 
So Muawiyah, her son, said about her that she was a formidable danger in the days of her ignorance and in Islam she was most noble and good. She had a tongue like a sword and a wit to match. And one day when Muawiyah was quite young, uh, she was walking with him in the streets of Mecca and somebody called out to her and said, if your son lives, he will be the leader of his people. And she replied, his bereavement will be if he leads only his people. So <laughs> she, she was so tough, this woman. Um, and of course, he went on to do just that. So Hind was famous for her poetry. She was famous for her eloquence. And she was very famous for her stance and what she did, unfortunately, after the Battle of Badr. So as we mentioned, Abu Sufyan had led that battle and the Quraysh, the Meccans, had lost. And in that battle, her brother, Al-Walid bin Utbah, was killed by Sayyidina Ali. And Sayyidina Hamza killed her uncle, Shayba bin Rabia. And both Ali and Hamza, may Allah be pleased with them, killed her father, Utbah bin Rabia. So she lost her brother, her uncle and her father in the one battle and she swore revenge and she swore that she would kill either Sayyidina Hamza or she would kill the Prophet and so she thought long and hard how is she going to do that and then she remembered that there was an Abyssinian slave amongst them called Al-Wahshi and that he was particularly skilled at javelin throwing and so she approached him and she said I will free you and give you a, a good amount of gold if you can kill either Sayyidina Hamza, may Allah be pleased with him, or the Prophet And so they had an agreement and he set off knowing that when they gathered and they were going to go for war, that that would be his job. And then the year after that, the Battle of Ohud happened and the Muslims were winning decisively and most people would know this story there were 50 archers on the hill and the Prophet ﷺ had told them do not leave your positions but they did because they saw the Muslims were winning and they wanted some of the spoils or the booty and some of them stayed on and most of them ran down the hill and then of course the great Khalid ibn al-Walid who later on became Muslim and probably the greatest military commander ever in history. Already then he was a tremendous military commander. It was just for the Meccans. He saw this, he took advantage, he came over the hill, slaughtered the few who were left, came down, absolute turmoil, and the Muslims lost. So that's a whole story in itself. And during that battle, Wahshi had his spear and he was on the lookout. He couldn't get to the Prophet but he kept his eye on Sayyidina Hamza and he found him and he uh, poised his uh, spear and threw it and he killed Sayyidina Hamza. So just prior to the actual battle taking place, there were about 14 women who went with the men to cheer them on and encourage them. And this is one of the songs that they would sing to try and uh, get their men feeling strong and courageous. So this translation says, O ye sons of Abdiddar, O protectors of our rear, smite with every sharpened spear. If you advance, we hug you. 
spread soft rugs beneath you. If you retreat, we leave you. Leave and no more love you. So this was the type of a drum beating and encouragement that the women were engaged in when they accompanied the men for war. And Hind, of course, was at the head of this female entourage because she so much wanted to exact her revenge for the death of her male relatives. And of course, she became very famous for a very gruesome act that was committed after Wahshi had done his job and killed Sayyidina Hamza. And as soon as he did that, he left because he had no more business in that battle. And so Hind came afterwards when some of the aftermath had settled down and she found his body, Sayyidina Hamza's body, and she cut out his liver and chewed on it. And then she cut off his blessed ears and his nose. And the other women did the same thing with the other corpses of the Muslims. And they made ornaments from the body parts and they hung them as anklets or necklaces on each other. So this was a really, really gruesome and horrible thing to do to mutilate dead bodies. But this was the evil in her. This was the uh, bitterness and the revenge that she so desperately wanted to exact against Sayyidina Hamza. May Allah be pleased with him, who the Prophet Alayhi's uh, uncle and who is the, uh, the leader of all the martyrs in Jannah. So as for Wahshi, he was a drunk and he went off and he was freed and Hind uh, fulfilled her agreement with him. She gave him a bag of coins before they headed off back to Mecca and then she freed him. But he always was ashamed of his actions because he knew that he had killed someone very, very great. And at the time when later on when the Muslims were closing in on Mecca for the conquest, he thought, what will he do? Where is he going to go? Because he, he thought he's going to be punished for killing Sayyidina Hamza. And so he thought, will he run away to Sham or will he run away to Yemen? And then he was told that if you enter the deen of Muhammad, you will be forgiven. So he did. He went to the Prophet ﷺ and he declared the Shahada and his entrance into Islam. And then the Prophet ﷺ asked him, he said, are you Wahshi? And he said, yes. And he accepted his Islam, but he also said, hide your face from me because he didn't want to see this man who had slaughtered his uncle so ruthlessly and for his own freedom. And so he did. So Wahshi stayed away from the Prophet ﷺ upon his request, but he made his Islam good. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And do you make your Islam good or not? And do you know and truly believe that Allah will forgive everything? And and, and Wahshi did. Uh, he believed that and he knew that. And so then he sought always to try and uh, compensate or make up for what he had done. So then afterwards, uh, in the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr, um, then there was a tribe outside of Mecca and someone called Musaylama the liar. And he claimed himself to be a prophet. And so the Muslims went to fight him and Wahshi knew that this was his opportunity for making up for what he had done. And so he went there with the sole intention of killing Musaylama. And 
he did. He threw his spear at him and he was struck by it. So Musaylama fell down, but then somebody else came and struck him with a sword. So Wahshi said that he didn't know who had actually killed him. Was it him or was it the other man who had struck Musaylama with the sword? And he said, if it was my spear that actually killed him, he said, then I would have killed the best and the worst. And so for him, that was kind of his own personal balancing and uh, compensation for what he had done. Anyway, after the Battle of Ohad, uh, it's reported that Hind stood on the hill and she shrieked at the top of her voice this uh, few lines of poetry. And she said, We have paid you back for Badr, and a war that follows a war is always violent. I could not bear the loss of Utbah, nor my brother and his uncle and my firstborn because she had another child who was also killed in Badr as well whose name was Handala. She said, I have slaked my vengeance and fulfilled my vow. You, O Washi, have assuaged the burning in my breast. I shall thank Washi as long as I live until my bones rot in the grave. So she was extremely gruesome, this woman. But the most important thing is that after the conquest of Mecca, she accepted Islam. Alhamdulillah. She knew that it was the truth. She had fought every single way that she could to try and stop it, to put out the light of Islam, to have people killed. She did everything that she possibly could and she realized that this was a, a battle that she was losing and that the best thing for her would be to submit. And so after the conquest, she was with a group of women and another very interesting female companion, Asma bint Yazid, inshallah we'll get to study her at some stage. Uh, she narrated that the following discourse took place about this particular ayah. And again, this is Surah Al-Mumtahina. And we looked at this last week when we looked at the story of Umm Kulthum when she came walking to Medina and the Prophet was told to ask her about her intentions, like to question her. And actually, just going back to that uh, briefly, I, I realized afterwards that that's the type of the type of order or the type of action that people might feel offended by in our uh, current uh, social, cultural and political climate. It's like, why would a woman need to be asked about her intention? And why wasn't why weren't the men asked? Like, how come specifically the Quran says, ask the women when they come to you? pledging their allegiance, okay, ask them, test them, question them about what their motives are. And I realized that uh, this is a pretty universal thing because just a few months ago, I happened to read uh, that there was a British woman in her 20s who had been caught smuggling money in from the UK to the Emirates. This was in the newspaper and this was about the third time that she had done it and this time she got caught smuggling millions of pounds and uh, she was asked about that and of course so this is what was reported and apparently she'd said that <clears throat> she was at a pretty low part low time in her life and she'd started to do things like plastic surgery and lip fillers and all this stuff because she was trying to feel better about herself and then she was approached by people to do this 
uh, money run thing between the two countries and they would pay her and I think she was only paid like 15,000 pounds or something like that which is not very much compared to the millions that she was smuggling and so she accepted and she did it and on the third time she got caught and I thought subhanallah this is how women get taken advantage of so when this order in the Quran comes to the Prophet to uh, question the women about what's going on it really is for their protection because as we mentioned last week you don't know who's behind the situation or what they're doing and this woman this a couple of months ago uh, here she was uh, so taken advantage of she was vulnerable she was needy she was lost in her life and some predators came and used and abused her and of course she'll have a terrible jail sentence and all the rest and the, the poor girl's life was ruined like for years uh, why because people came and took advantage of her so that questioning is to prevent that is to make sure that there's no one taking advantage of women and the vulnerability that they might exhibit anyway when it comes to uh, this particular verse also in the same surah and we'll have an, another one come in a moment too uh, then Asma bint Yazid she mentions this dialogue that went on between Hind and the Prophet والسلام, so it said here that the Prophet والسلام, read these eyes to the group of women who were coming now after the conquest of Mecca to give their allegiance to him and to declare their Islam so it, it says, Ya ayyuhan nabi, O Prophet. So if believing women come to you pledging allegiance, which is what they were doing, on the condition that they will not associate anything with Allah. Allah yushrikna billahi shay'an. And so Hind responded to that and she said, Well, I mean, how could it be that uh, anything of shirk or associating with Allah would be accepted from us women if it's not accepted by men and so she said this is implied <laughs> so she says this is a logical conclusion okay so you can see she was like fierce and stubborn like right to the very very end uh, so she's like sort of you know what what sort of a thing is that like why would we associate anything with Allah and how could it be accepted from us if it wasn't even accepted from the men Okay, and then the next part where it says, Wala yasrikna, and that they will not steal. She said, Whatever I've earned from the wealth of Abu Sufyan, she says, I don't know about that if it's halal for me or not. And then Abu Sufyan was also there, and he, he calls out and he says, Whatever you've got from what's happened in the past, then it's halal for you. And then the Prophet knew that this was probably Hind because she'd covered her face. She didn't want to be known to him in that gathering because she too was ashamed of what had happened before. But that didn't stop her feistiness all the same. And so he said to her, are you Hind? Uh, and then she said, yes. And she said, oh, forgive me and pardon me about what has happened before. Ya Nabi Allah and Allah will forgive and pardon you. So this was her way, her, her first opportunity where she could really try and, and put forward her repentance for herself. And then the ayah says that um, if they come to you pledging her allegiance, so they won't associate anything with Allah, nor steal, nor commit adultery. 
And so she said, what, do free women commit adultery? And as we said, like, they didn't do that. And what she meant by that was that this was something that only non-free women did in the time of uh, Jahiliya, in the time of ignorance, and that uh, ordinarily or uh, generally speaking that free women didn't do that. Uh, so she was saying, like, why are you talking to us about that when we already know that this is something that we don't do? And then the ayah says, nor kill their children. And this is where her sharpness came out. And she said, oh, we're the ones who raise them and you're the ones who kill them. So what she's referring to is the death of her own child who had been killed in one of the battles. And at this point, it said that Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiallahu anhu, that he began to laugh at her wit and at how fast she was at coming out with saying these things. And it says here that he laughed so hard that he fell over. Okay, literally says that. Although, of course, we can't imagine him falling over. So it just means that he laughed hard or quite vigorously and that even the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, smiled and smiled at how fast she was and how sharp she was. And then it says that will not bring forth a slander. Now, it's a very literal translation here. I don't particularly like it. I don't always really like a lot of these translations uh, because it's too literal. But slander that they have invented between their arms and legs, which means that um, they won't come forth with any false attribution of parenthood to one's husband. So if there is an adopted child or a child that has been given birth to that a woman won't pretend that it's her husband's child when it might not be. Okay, so as we know, these rulings are universal. We don't always necessarily understand the, the time and place in which they might apply, but this was uh, mentioned here in this particular verse. So you can't uh, fake uh, your husband's uh, fatherhood of a child that you might have in your possession. And then it says, nor disobey you, the Prophet in anything righteous. And so she said, well, we wouldn't even be here sitting with you if we were going to disobey you. So again, this feistiness. And then the Prophet ﷺ is told, accept their allegiance. This is kind of the condition. So accept their allegiance and ask Allah's forgiveness for them. Allah is forgiving and merciful. And it said that the only reason why she could speak like that in this kind of back-chatting type of way is because of the status that she enjoyed being the mother-in-law of Um Habiba, who's the next woman that we're going to look at, who was the wife of the Prophet ﷺ. So Abu Sufyan's daughter became the Prophet ﷺ's wife. Um, and so it said that she could only speak that way because she was the stepmother of Um Habiba. Um, and then it said that she uh, lived her life well, she was a good Muslim, and that she actually passed away on the same day as Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, radiallahu anhu wa radiallahu anha. So she made herself good. And what's important to note too is that she didn't give up her feistiness and her personality. And this is kind of something that uh, people think like, you know, when you become Muslim, all of a sudden you have to like lose your personality and lose who you are. And this is a, unfortunately, um, something that many people feel pressured by when they change their life and they think they have to change their personality as well. And uh, all that's required is a refining and an adornment and each person knows uh, what are their good qualities and what 
are they are not so good qualities and so Islam is an entire system which enables you to perfect yourself within that system and to uh, really be uh, the person that you truly are in the most pure and blessed way. Uh, SubhanAllah and uh, we saw that with Hind and in fact the strength of her character was her strength as a person. The fact that she was so feisty and fierce was something that uh, it, it was dis disadvantageous for her but it was also something that she benefited from as well and we'll discuss that a little bit more in a moment inshallah. So finally our third Sahabiyah that we're studying today is Ramla bint Abi Sufyan so the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Her name was Um Habiba after her daughter, the mother of Habiba. She became the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and she bore the title of the mother of the believers. She was one of the Prophet's wives and they were called collectively as the mothers of the believers. So we'll just go quickly through her story. Uh, we don't really know who her mother was. Uh, she could have been a slave girl of Abu Sufyan. And here we have the real contrast because Ramla, Um Habiba, accepted Islam very, very early. So we have Abu Sufyan's sister reject outright. We have his wife reject it first and then accept. And we have his daughter who accepted right from the beginning. So we have this one man with these very three different women around him of his closest relatives and looking at their very different responses to Islam. So she accepted Islam very early and she went with her first husband who was Ubaidullah bin Jahash to Abyssinia. So she was in the first group that made the first migration away from the persecution of the Quraysh and to the protected lands of Abyssinia or um, Habasha, Ethiopia, under the protection of the Christian King Najashi, who is known as Negus in English. So look what she did. She left the most bitter and evil family in Mecca, and that's where she came from. So she's like this sunflower that just grew out of the dirt and completely different to all the others. And she left the bitterest enemies ever. And right from the start, she just turned around and left. And look at her aunt, look at her stepmother. And she left them for her deen. She left them for the sake of her belief. So when we look at that, then we also need to ask ourselves, well, what will, what will I do for the sake of my religion? And each person is able to question themselves and ask themselves that. So she was pregnant when they left, when they made the migration first to the coast and then from the coast when they took the boats over the Red Sea to Ethiopia. And there she had her baby girl, Habiba. And unfortunately, her husband, Obeidullah, became very tried and he ended up accepting the Christian faith. And he pressurized her. Uh, but she refused and he then came out of it and accepted Islam again and then he went back into it and she had two significant dreams that are reported so the first is that she actually saw her husband um, one night in the worst possible state um, in a really really evil and dark and terrible image and she was extremely scared and so she said that Allah has changed his state and then he said to her, 
in the morning, he said, Oh, Um Habiba, he said, I've been looking at this deen, at this religion of the Christians, and he said, and I haven't seen anything better than it. And he said, and in fact, I've even accepted it. And then he rejected it, as we said, and then he came back to um, the deen of the Prophet, and then he said to her, and then I rejected that again, and I went back to Christianity. She told him about the dream that she had had and the state that she saw him in. And then it ended up that he stayed in the state he was in. He stayed with the Christian religion and he ended up being overcome with uh, alcohol and basically becoming a drunk until he died. And this was extremely distressful for her, of course, because they had gone there together uh, in this uh, migration. And now here she was in this land uh, without a husband and a husband who died um, on a different religion and she had a daughter and it was quite a situation for her to be in. And then she says that she saw uh, sometime after that another dream and in it she was addressed in this dream and she was called, yeah, Umm al-Mu'mineen, oh, mother of the believers. And so she was also quite alarmed by this and so she says that she understood from this dream that it was the Prophet that he wanted to marry her. And so she says that it wasn't long, uh, not many days had passed uh, after the, the end of her idda, of her waiting period after the death of her husband, when she was sent a messenger from Najashi. Okay, so somebody came and knocked on her door and it happened to be one of Najashi's slave girls called Abraha, that was her name. And so uh, she came, it says here that Abraha was the slave who used to uh, dress Najashi, fix his clothes and oil his hair. Um, and so the girl came in and she said, oh, the king has a message for you. And he says that Rasulullah, uh, the messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, um, has uh, ordered him to conduct the marriage for you and him on his behalf. And so she said that um, Allah has given you a great, uh, has given you good tidings and, and blessings. And so Um Habiba was so pleased by this and this realization of her dream that she gave Abraha some silver bangles that she had and some rings um, out of her joy for her having brought this message to her. And at the same time, Abraha had said to her, when you go, send my salams to the messenger of Allah and tell him that I have entered his deen. And so it would be some time still, but uh, uh, Um Habiba, she did that. And the Prophet ﷺ made dua for Abraha as well. So she was called to the, uh, the court of Najashi, who said that he's been given this responsibility of kind of being the proxy for the Prophet and that he would conduct this marriage and he gave her uh, some uh, wealth, they say about 400 dinars and then he performed this marriage ceremony and she became married to the Prophet and then shortly after she migrated back over the sea and back to Medina where she took up her place as being the wife of the Prophet and living there in Medina. And then, as we said, Abu Sufyan, her father, had come to negotiate. This was right at the end before uh, Mecca had been uh, conquered. And so, of course, he knew his daughter was there. And what he did was he entered Medina and he went to his daughter's house, walked straight in and sat down. And he sat down on some bedding. 
And then immediately she jumped up and she pulled it out from under him. And he was very surprised. And he said, are you taking the bed from me or are you taking me from the bed? And she said, this is the bed of Rasulullah and you are a dirty polytheist. You cannot sit here. And he looked at her shocked and he said, after coming here, you've really been affected by evil. Like this is just something else. And so, of course, she didn't want her father to meet the same fate as the other leaders of the polytheists had before, such as Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab. And so she prayed long and hard for his Islam, and he finally accepted, as we'd mentioned at the beginning. And then it said about her that upon her death, she called Sayyida Aisha, and Sayyida Aisha narrates this, and she said, uh, what has passed between us is what passes between co-wives. And she said, please forgive me as I forgive you. And Sayyida Aisha says that then Um Habiba called for Um Salama, one of the other wives, and she said the same. And then she passed away in the year 44 Hijrah. So this is a verse that was revealed with regards to her also in Surah Al-Mumtahina. And it says that perhaps Allah will cultivate affection between you and those of them you consider enemies. Allah is all-powerful. Allah is the most forgiving and merciful. And so it said that, um, <clears throat> that this was revealed about Abu Sufyan, about her father, with regards to her, because she is the one who, through this marriage, had not really brought them together, but she was kind of a bit of a catalyst for it as well, because uh, Abu Sufyan had to uh, accept the Prophet as his son-in-law. Uh, so this man who had fought so aggressively and bitterly for years was actually his son-in-law, was the husband of his daughter. And so the Prophet also, he had to accept Abu Sufyan, his most uh, terrible enemy, as his father-in-law. So this is also a way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings people's hearts together. And there's a, a hadith here that's mentioned from Ibn Abbas, it's actually in Sahih Muslim. And uh, Abu Sufyan had said to the Prophet uh, after his acceptance of Islam, and some of the Muslims, they didn't want to look at him and they didn't want to sit with him. Like the, they, uh, you know, Alhamdulillah, they accepted the fact that he'd become Muslim, but they just really couldn't deal with everything that had happened before. So they just left him alone. And so he said to the Prophet, Ya Nabi Allah, he said, uh, give me three things and the prophet said nah yes and he said i have the best of the arabs and the most beautiful of them um habiba bint abi sufyan so my daughter so he's praising his daughter and he said which means that i marry her to you okay which is really significant because the father is the wali the father is the one who gives the daughter in marriage to the husband and of course he missed out on that because uh, Najashi the king of Ethiopia had actually performed that role and so he wanted to be a part of this blessed marriage as well and so just out of custom or out of tradition he said that and the prophet said Nam, yes so he accepted this now as a symbol of the acceptance of their uh, marriage and then he said uh, as for Muawiyah, his son, he said, make him a scribe with you. So make him one of your scribes, which he was, actually. He wrote the Quran and he was, a, he was very educated and he could read and write. And the Prophet, alayhi said, naam. And then he said, 
Uh, do you order me to fight the non-believers the way that I fought the Muslims? And the Prophet ﷺ said, no. Nah. He said, yes. SubhanAllah. So this is reported in Sahih Muslim. Okay, so just to finish up, what are, what's the significance of some of these stories and what can we try and uh, learn and think about and ponder and what relevance can we draw from them in terms of our own lives? This is just a few out of many. Uh, one of them is recognizing truth from falsehood. And certainly Arwa, our first one, the wife of Abu Lahab, she failed in that miserably, unfortunately. Hind came to it late, but she still came to it, alhamdulillah. And uh, Um Habiba, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, she knew it right from the beginning. So it's very important that truth is distinguished from falsehood and acted upon. Uh, and uh, we need to ask ourselves all the time, what is it that's stopping me from seeing the truth? What falsehoods am I acting upon either ignorantly or willingly or what do I think of these different ways of looking at the world and seeing the world that I'm going to get out of that that could possibly be better than what Islam can give me and really question yourself and uh, and, and and be sincere in that and if you don't know ask Allah to open your heart ask Allah to open your mind and, and to give you that guidance and we ask him all the time oh Allah let us see truth as truth and give us that, guide us to that, and let us see falsehood as falsehood and enable us to avoid that. And that's a really important dua. So secondly, that love of this worldly life leads to evil acts and wretchedness, as we have seen. Um, and the more people want this world and the wealth in it and the status in it and the power in it, then um, if they're not checked, then the more they will act in bad ways and in wretched ways and as we saw it's only humans who wrong themselves Allah doesn't wrong anyone Allah is the just and the merciful and the kind and the generous and Allah's system of Islam is there for our guidance and our own good just as there are physical laws in nature gravity and um, photosynthesis and all these things that we know about through our advanced study of science this is how the world works this is how things work there's also a way for human beings to work and how to be in this world there is a moral system there is an economic system there's a social system there's all these systems and that's what Islam is it is the way that Allah has created the systems for human beings to live in the best possible way that suits them and enables them to fulfill their purpose of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, then the strength of a person's conviction can have positive and negative consequences, as we've seen. So the wife of Abu Lahab, of course, the strength of her conviction was extremely negative. We saw Hind as well doing really gruesome things uh, based on these oaths that she had sworn. Uh, but then she came around and so she was able to have that strong, strong personality but have with positive consequences because she channeled that strength of conviction in the right way. And then we know that guidance is from Allah alone. And uh, one of the eyes, So the Prophet ﷺ was told by Allah that you can't guide who you love. Okay, guidance is from Allah alone. Abu Lahab was his uncle. Um, he, he had many family members who were against him and other people as well. 
and that all you can do is pray for people but most importantly you never give up and because nobody knows what their outcome will be also that Allah's decree will unfold and we saw that with Hind and even though she is still there right at the end being stubborn and making comments and things like that she was going to enter Islam this was written for her and she showed a kind of an obstinance but at the same time she knew what she was doing and uh, and she knew that this was a part of Allah's decree for her and finally that family does not determine your outcome as we have seen particularly with that Umm Habiba where she came from a really wretched evil and violent uh, family or some members of that family anyway and uh, she just bloomed like a desert rose in all of that took off and did her own thing and never looked back alhamdulillah and ended up being uh, immortalized really as one of the mothers of the believers and that's the positive consequence that she got for the strength of her positive conviction so alhamdulillah uh, we will finish there and i hope inshallah that that's uh, shed a bit more light on the uh, multi-dimensional aspect of all these people so they're not just uh, one-dimensional flat characters that we're reading in books and hearing stories about from time to time but remembering of course that these are very very real people who went through very real challenges and some succeeded and some didn't and uh, their lives although they were experiencing things uh, in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, they still had those internal struggles. So Alhamdulillah, we have the Qur'an, we have the Sunnah, we have 1400 years a canon uh, of uh, knowledge and that's our thing that we hold on to. So we don't have the Prophet ﷺ in his physical form, but we have the scholars who are his inheritors and we have this incredible tradition and culture and history and legacy and, and that's alive and it will always be alive as long as it's alive in the hearts of people and inshallah we ask Allah to make us of those people whose hearts are alive with faith, with conviction, uh, with strength and with honesty and truthfulness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and really, really seeking uh, to improve ourselves and to be on that path uh, of the Sunnah of the Messenger والسلام, and to emulate the best of the character and behavior of these women who we're studying, uh, women are on the straight path, and to avoid that of people who are not on the straight path, as we can see, because there's no benefit to it. So, inshallah, we ask Allah for tawfiq, for success, for healing. Inshallah, wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.